0: Each year in May, the Eurovision Song Contest gives entertainers from even the smallest
1: nations a chance at an international spotlight. And they will say always the same things. I just want to thank everybody for what a fantastic evening this has been. It's been the best Eurovision ever. And then everybody claps and they go, yay. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves,
0: Jonathan Gruber lets us in on the glamorous fanfare and the kitsch of this annual European extravaganza. And for a change of pace on this side of the Atlantic, you first need to let yourself slip into a lower gear when you arrive in Mexico. Relax,
2: don't plan ahead too much, and be open to whatever happens.
3: The biggest thing is to be open to people. So many gringos go through in their own little world, if you look at people, if you smile, you're going to start making friends.
0: The authors of The People's Guide to Mexico share tips from their one-of-a-kind guide to enjoying life south of the border. It's all coming up pronto on Travel with Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting intimate perspectives from American travelers who've spent years enjoying life abroad. A little later in the hour, an American journalist recommends some of the fun places he and his family enjoy in the Netherlands. Plus, he plugs us into a European tradition that he still can't seem to figure out even after 20 years of living on the continent we'll hear how the -the over-the-top Eurovision Song Contest makes a big splash every year in May. Let's start out with two seasoned travelers who specialize in Mexico. Carl Franz and Lorena Havens actually helped me get started as a guidebook author back in the 1970s when they started writing The People's Guide to Mexico. It's become a classic on how to travel well in many cross-cultural settings. Their book's now out in its 14th edition, and it teaches travelers about the cultural subtleties of Mexico. But it's not a conventional guidebook. There are no long lists of recommended hotels and resort restaurants. Instead, Carl and Lorena focus on helping you find your own authentic Mexico. Plus, they offer advice on staying healthy, tips for driving and camping there, and even the stories behind local customs and superstitions. Carl and Lorena, thanks for being here. Oh, it's great to see you again. Wonderful to be here. Now we go way back because when I first was published in 1982, uh, you guys introduced me to my own publisher.
2: Yeah, as a matter of fact, I was thinking about that because you were sitting under the stairwell in the school where I went to kindergarten. At a little book fair. That's right. And I thought, (laughs) who is this guy? And why is he so excited all the time? (laughs) And I still
0: am excited because I'm talking to Carl and Lorena now about book publishing in Mexico. And I remember (laughs) I was saying uh, I had self-published for two or three editions, and I was tired of self-publishing. Right. And you guys said, hey, our publisher is looking for somebody with this spirit of travel.
2: Yeah. And I, I have to tell a little story on our publisher who, unfortunately, isn't around, isn't alive to hear it. But you were a hard sell, Rick. He couldn't. Right? I was trying to describe you, and he was looking at me like I who is this guy?
0: <laughs> well, well, what is it about your guidebook that's different? Because you're, well, com- you're competing with other guidebooks, you know that would have all the conventional listings. Yeah, so. exactly.
2: Well, when we first did the book, first of all, we didn't have the resources, the energy, or the organization to include lots of specific places. Mm-hmm. You know, Mexico was changing so quickly in terms of restaurants and things like that. I mean, you didn't know if a restaurant was even going to be there the next time you came around next week. Mm-hmm. And and that isn't really my interest. I'm really much more interested in just the overall experience, the Mexican people, the humor, the music, the culture, all of those things that you normally find kind of as asides in a guidebook were the things that really interested me. And we were traveling at the time with our friend Steve Rogers, and that was his interest. What year was this? Well, I first went to Mexico in in 1964, Mm -hmm. and then Lorena and Steve and I returned in 69, and the book was published
0: in December of 72.
3: That's 40 years.
0: Lorena, this must have been quintessential hippie time in, in Mexico, wasn't it?
3: Absolutely. What was that like? Well... There was the hippie, you know, movement. We were looking for new adventures. And here's Mexico, cheap and totally unknown. You know, there's no road signs. There's just, you know, it's all an experience. There's no...
0: Everything's an adventure.
3: There is. And there's no how-to. You know, and there weren't even many... There weren't guidebooks that gave you hotels. Right. And I have to say, probably the real reason why there's no hotels and restaurants in our book... Is we never stayed in <laughs> hotels.
0: You were sleeping in your van.
3: We were in the van. We were camping on beaches, yeah. and with Steve to cook, who would go eat in restaurants.
0: Hence the John Muir connection. Who uh, John right. Muir wrote the the what was the book? How to keep your Volkswagen alive. And, we, and met, we met him on the beach in Mexico. So this really was like this is like the the George Washington and Thomas Jefferson of hippie travel. <laughs> 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 Yeah. I was just reading a, a listing today of um, backpacker destinations around the world and what it costs. I mean, you mm-hmm. can, you can, and and you can still live for twenty or twenty-five dollars a day in most of the world if you know how to backpack exactly. and, and sleep on the beach and yeah. picnic and and this sort of thing.
2: And you know, even when we do stay in hotels, because I have to confess, we do like a bed these days. But <laughs> but typically, you know, in the evening, I'd rather stay in the hotel and, and read a good book or maybe take a nap. And so I'll go down to the market and buy some bolillos, some, yeah. you know, rolls, a can of La Sierra refried beans. They're the best. No lard.
3: Vegetarian.
2: An avocado. And go back to the hotel room and, and whip up a little, you know, sure. get out your backpacking stove or plug in your little immersion heater
3: and
0: uh, make a ramen yeah and you can sit on the on the deck and enjoy the view and and have, have your own picnic dinner yeah right
3: but you know we traveled like sort of as hippies right now our partner chirpa steve's daughter is down there in a van with her husband traveling just like we did
0: i love that idea because these kids have their their cell phones and their you know their Uh, internet accounts and their ATM cards and all of this, but the fundamental magic of travel, you can still have it, just like Carl and Lorena with the People's Guide to Mexico. It's great news. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking People's Guide to Mexico, and if you were traveling back in the in the 70s, in your Volkswagen van. I'm sure you had this book in your uh, glove compartment or in your rucksack, The People's Guide to Mexico. Uh, and this is out now in its new edition, and uh, it's written by Carl Franz and Lorena Havens. We'll talk about how it is applicable today, as it is uh, for the, the, the children of all those hippies. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the, the website is thepeoplesguidetomexico.com. Carl and Lorena, when you think about the magic of Mexico for a hippie kind of traveler, apparently it still works today. Is, is the advice still relevant? How can people today enjoy that beautiful, accessible Mexican culture in a way that has no bearing on how much money you're spending? I mean, you can make the case that by spending less, you're actually going to experience more.
3: Absolutely. Well, traveling is more expensive than it used to be. When you're driving down gas, Gasoline, all of those expenses. Yeah. But if you have the time and you can drive, you can have, The experiences of getting to know people. This is really what traveling is about. That's fundamental, isn't it? Is taking the time to get to know people. You know, the the biggest thing is to be open to people. So many gringos go through in their own little world. Mm -hmm. You don't really relate to Mm. people. If you look at people, if you smile, if you appear appreciative... You're in a different experience. You're going to start making friends. But you
0: have to take the initiative. You fly down to Mazatlan and just stay right there at the resort hotel. That's pathetic as far as getting to know the the culture. You walk six blocks inland, even in Mazatlan, and you can have an experience. Yeah.
2: There really are two Mexicos. There's resort Mexico, tourist Mexico, the beaten track, the Mm -hmm. gringo trail, whatever Mm -hmm. you want to call it. And that represents maybe 5% of Mexico. And probably 95%
0: of the American travelers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Has the Mexican attitude towards America and Americans changed any in in the 110 years you've been traveling there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're much more familiar to Mexico. When we first
2: went to Mexico, we went to many, many places where, you know, we were among the first, if not the first tourists they'd ever seen. And they didn't quite get it. You know, what are you doing here? Why are you here? So they're, they're really more worldly now and more... Better, much more, much in. more worldly. And so many Mexicans have family or themselves have been to the States or to Canada to work. Right. So there's a good part of that and a bad part. The good part is that they are much more worldly. It's easier to deal with people, especially people with less education that you mm-hmm. might run into in smaller villages. But the downside of it, I think, is that a lot of those, some of those people have had bad experiences while they were in the United States, or they've been treated poorly by oh. tourists, and they they get a little more standoffish, but you can break through that very easily a little bit of Spanish, slaughter the language, but try it.
0: So in Mexico, that really helps. If you have a person who's got a chip on their shoulder about yeah. America for some reason, they had a relative up there who was had exactly. terrible experience, or whatever, they don't like our trade policy or whatever. Right. You can break through that and they'll treat you as an individual if you can speak the language a little bit. Well, yeah. buenos dias. That'll do it. <laughs> buenos <laughs> dias is
3: going to change everything.
0: That's very important. Yeah. A lot of people are so shy about their language. Carl and Lorena, you guys have been going down to Mexico now for most of your lives. What's the first thing you do when you get back to Mexico? What, what really psychologically is, okay, now we're back.
3: Uh I heave a sigh of relief. I really feel, wow, I've survived the States and I'm back in Mexico.
0: Survived the States, how so? Just the intensity of life? The
3: intensity, actually, I feel safer in Mexico. I feel there's a calmness. Food. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're going to get some good food.
0: You're going to get real Mexican food.
3: Real Mexican food. You know, there's the markets. Yeah, there's just a whole, I'm sure nostalgia has to do, but all these wonderful things that I can go do now and that I'm back safe. in Mexico. Now a lot of
0: people would they would go safe. What are you talking about? There's the drug war. Fifty thousand people have died. You see it in the newspapers. Uh, you know they're beheading people in Tijuana. Uh, but but you're actually saying you feel safe in Mexico?
3: I wouldn't hang out in Tijuana. Right. You know I would cross a border in the morning if I was driving to see make sure I was away uh-huh. from the border area before night. But Rick, kids still play in the parks at night.
0: Right. Yeah, there's a swath of 20, 30 miles along the border all the way across, which is a different country. Yeah, almost. and
2: there, there are certain states like Sinaloa that are, have been notorious for drug action, you know, right. since we first started traveling in Mexico. Right. So, you, you know, you've got to be smart about it. But most of Mexico is as safe as it has ever been, which doesn't mean it's perfectly safe. In spite of the drug war, tourism is up to Mexico you know, Cancun is probably financially the most successful planned resort in the world. Is that right? So yeah. even
0: even now you hear, I mean, just from a casual observer's point, it, it would seem like, oh, it's dreadful times for tourism, but there still are a lot of it's, tourists going to yes, Mexico. Yes, because the drug war is really
2: a three-sided civil war between major drug cartels and the Mexican government, and it takes place on a limited battlefield. So... Northern Mexico and Northwestern Mexico has a large presence of police and army. but in other parts of the country, in the state of Guerrero and the states mm-hmm. of Veracruz there's also there's also been a lot of narco action, but it rarely affects tourists other than psychologically.
0: There's lots more with Carl Franz and Lorena Havens, the authors of the classic People's Guide to Mexico. Plus your calls at 877-333-7425. That's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. 50 years ago, Carl Franz ditched college in the cold rains of Seattle and drove all the way to Mexico for the first time, where his travel buddy Steve Rogers had lived as an exchange student. A few years later, Lorena Havens joined them on their hippie van travels across Mexico. Today, the 14th edition of their classic People's Guide to Mexico contains more than 700 pages of wisdom they gleaned over the years to help any traveler find the real joys of life in Mexico. Their website is thepeoplesguidetomexico.com. What is the fundamentals of The People's Guide, Carl?
2: It's basically relax, don't plan ahead too much, and be open to whatever happens. You know, just don't try to pin everything down. Mexico doesn't pin down easily.
0: Now, that was true when you had hair on the top of your head and you were running around, <laughs> <laughs> you were running around in Mexico as a hippie in a, in a van with, uh, with your girlfriend, uh, Lorena, and, and all your parrots, buddies and, and, two, and parrots. two parrots. And is that still true today, a generation later?
2: Yeah, it is true, but obviously things have changed. Like you say, for one, I've lost my hair, but uh, I haven't lost my appreciation for getting off the beaten track in Mexico. So the fundamentals
0: yeah. of the People's Guide message is still there, even in, in our modern day and age. You just have the convenience yeah. of ATM machines and cell phones and people exactly. who are more likely to speak English. Yeah,
2: yeah. It's easier to travel in Mexico physically. They're, and the rewards
0: are just as good. They're
2: absolutely fantastic.
0: Carl, when you think of all the places you've been, you know my whole thing about back doors, finding those magical little spots where you've undiscovered and it's just your Mexico. You're
2: not going to ask me for my favorite place, are I'll you? tell you
0: mine if you tell me yours. <laughs> <laughs> what would, where, where would you go to just enjoy that? What you as quintessential Mexico as far as People's Guide to Mexico is concerned? Oh, boy. Rick, That's a tough question. Know, I, in I, so I, many countries. I hate it when people ask me <laughs> that, know, and now I'm asking you that. Yeah, yeah right. So, yeah. But, I mean, if, it must be frustrating for you to hear people who go all their lives back to Puerto Vallarta in Acapulco.
2: Yeah. Well, what I've always said is, you know, look at a map of Mexico and pick, a, pick the name of a town you don't know. And go there. Okay. The first place I went in Mexico was Topolobampo. Went to Topolabampo simply because of the name. A fun name. And so we chanted Topolabampo, Topolobampo, <laughs> all the way to Topolabampo. We got there, we had a shrimp cocktail, and we left. It
0: was great. Wherever you go, there you are. Yeah. There yeah. you go.
3: You know, Rick, we went down on the train when it used to run. And one of my favorite places whenever we did was the town of Zacatecas. No one goes to Zacatecas. It's an old colonial town. Mm-hmm. We always would get off, spend a night. On the plaza, if that peso was really low, away from the plaza, if it wasn't, it's See just
0: any town, Mexico. What's it called? The the Zacatecas. It's, like it. it. it's fun to say. Like, uh, what yeah. was your other town? Right. Topolobampo. Topolobampo. I mean, yeah, I, right. there's a place in Italy called Poggi Banzai, Or
2: Coatzacoalcos. There's another one. That's a good one. Good mm-hmm. shrimp cocktails there, too, by the way.
0: You know, somebody said your book is a great guide to India and the developing world as well yeah. as Mexico. Yeah. I think that's one of the greatest compliments for a guide. We now, thought so, too. When somebody yeah. says that, what does that mean?
2: I think there are universal, <laughs> if you want to, I mean, this is going to sound very wise, but there are universal truths about travel. And that's hopefully we touched on that.
3: But Rick, just one thing you talk about, like going to Mazatlan, you have a hotel, you have a place to stay, you can get on the bus and do day trips, talk to people, find out, talk to the people in the hotel, where Mm -hmm. do you live? Where's your family? Oh, take a day trip, go for a couple hours, eat lunch, walk around, check out the market, check out some stores, come back to your hotel, do that two or three times and you're going to travel differently.
0: That's like Mexico with training wheels, and then someday you can take those training wheels off, and <laughs> you got got exactly. Zopopongor. What was the name? <laughs> Topolabompo, right? Topolabompo. i write that on the back of your hand. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Carl Franz and Lorena Havens, the authors of The People's Guide to Mexico, a, a guidebook that, if you're not uh, from my generation, you may not know it, but this book was the book back when I was a uh, (laughs) a backpacker and and it's so exciting to have Carl and Lorena right here talking about the magic of Mexico living on even in our post-hippie age the spirit of that book is alive and well our phone number is 877-333-7425 and Meredith is on the line in Chattanooga Tennessee Meredith thanks for your call
4: hi thank you so much
0: Ah, thanks for calling do you have a a comment or an idea to share with uh, Carl and Lorena
4: yes I um, I am a Spanish major at my university and I'm looking for places in Mexico where I can actually speak a lot of Spanish but are still safe because I've heard that resort towns are usually safe but I don't know how much, you know, Spanish is spoken there. And I didn't know if you had any suggestions for places like that.
2: Uh, hi Meredith, this is Carl. I wouldn't discount the idea of going to a resort town if you're more comfortable there, especially if it's, you know, if it's your first trip. And if you're a single female, that you know, that's certainly a reasonable idea. But remember that every resort town is supported and serviced by thousands of real, genuine Mexicans who only speak Spanish. For example, Lorraine and I wrote a small privately published book in Puerto Vallarta, and, and we were living in a hotel, but we hung out in what you might call the Mexican area of town, where the food was cheaper and better and the conversation was 100% Spanish. And, you know, go back to the same little hole-in-the-wall restaurant time and time again and they'll get to know you very quickly and tell them why you're there and what you're doing mm. and they'll really get off on it.
0: They'll appreciate it, I would imagine. Yeah. And, you know, I'm so struck, Meredith, by how you go to the biggest, most crassly American and first world resort in Mexico and you can, you can just walk for 20 minutes, or hop in a bus or something, and in, in half an hour, you are in the most genuine
3: world
4: exactly. without
0: without a hint of the resort.
3: And then go to a little town nearby, get a bus or a cab, and just hang out. Mm-hmm. So those are still would be considered safer areas since they are so close to resort towns? Well, you know...
0: I think you're overreacting to the safe thing, Meredith. You know, you don't want to stay away from the drug capitals and the border areas, but once you get immersed in Mexico as a tourist... I I think you just got to call your loved ones every day back home and let them know you're still alive. (laughs) And Don't don't tell them how much fun you're having or they'll be down there with you.
3: But also you can talk to other people. I mean, if there's some place that's not a good place to be going, other tourists will tell you or the Mexicans will tell you. And if you just keep aware of things like that, you can go anywhere.
0: Meredith, thanks for your call.
3: Thank you so much.
0: You have some very good common sense tips for, for safety. Avoid drugs and drinking scenes. Don't drive at night. Be nice to cops and soldiers. Yeah. And relax.
2: And if anybody hassles you, just smile and don't say anything.
0: And is that the same sort of wisdom that you got out of all your gems back in the 70s? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Just don't say anything and smile. (laughs)
2: You
3: know, Rick, one thing that people drive down that's really changed is there's now serious seatbelt laws everywhere.
0: Really? I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with uh, Carl uh, Friends, and Lorena Havens about their People's Guide to Mexico out in its 14th edition. And Matt's on the phone in Renton, Washington. Matt, thanks for your call.
5: Sure. Thanks for having me on the show. My uh, family and I just returned from a 10-day trip to Guadalajara and surrounding regions. We just got back two days ago. And uh, we were there with our our children, ages six and three. And, you know, we wanted to take them to get them sort of off the beaten path. We've taken them to Europe, but wanted to expose them to a different part of the world. And it turned out to be a pretty great trip.
0: In Guadalajara. And what what worked with your kids? Uh, This is a great idea to bring the family down there.
5: Yeah. So, you know, they're kids, so they responded very well to the zoo. It's a really impressive zoo there in Guadalajara. But we also had some nice day trips down to Lake Chapala. And uh, Tlaquepaque is a nice little suburban area of Guadalajara. So there were lots of options. Um, you know, we didn't cover as much ground as we certainly would have had it just been the adults. But uh, we slowed down, and, and
0: it was good. Kids are popular, too, in restaurants, aren't they? Lorraine, you can take kids into a restaurant with them.: Oh, absolutely.
3: It. In fact, if you've got a kid, you'll probably get served before the rest of us old folks. <laughs> but, you know, Rick, another thing, particularly if you had younger kids and are down there for any length of time, Hire somebody local to be their babysitter. The kids will be learning Spanish. That's a great idea. They will have an in to somebody's home, and they'll become mm-hmm. part of the community and learn to hang out with other Mexican kids.
0: So you go to a, a, just any old town in Mexico, and I'm not talking about a resort town necessarily, but just a real town, and you could ask at your hotel, oh, do you have a line on a local babysitter? Mm-hmm. You could
3: do that. Absolutely.
0: So that's a good idea, Matt, also. But what a cool experience to bring your kids uh, down there and, and get them comfortable with what's going on south of the border.
3: Did you take them to one of the markets there in Guadalajara, Matt?
5: We did. We
0: were uh, a little
5: overwhelmed by Tonalá. That was the biggest (laughs) market we went to, and it was uh, it was crazy. What is that Uh, now? An experience. Tonalá. Yeah.
0: And how was that overwhelming?
5: Well, well, I guess on Thursdays and Sundays they have markets that I don't yeah. know how many people come to, but it's you just know it's vast, Mexican huh? intensive. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah.
0: So Matt, when your kids talk with their friends now about their experience in Mexico, what are the what do they usually mention? What's memorable for them?
5: Well, we're all still processing since we just got back, but uh, our six-year-old immediately mentions the ballet. We went to the Guadalajara Ballet hmm. at the uh, the Theater de, de Goyado. I think is the name of it, the theater yeah. right there in Guadalajara. And that was a very special experience. And then we also went out to Huachimontones, which is a pyramid and some ruins. And uh, I think that made quite an impression, too.
0: Did you use a guidebook uh, to help you find hotels and restaurants and so on?
5: We did. We we found that the Guadalajara, there's not there's not a lot of uh, material out there dedicated to Guadalajara. So we did some research online and guidebooks we could find, but it's certainly not. Uh, right. The resources aren't there like there might be for you know, Paris.
0: Carl and Lorraine, of course, have written The People's Guide to Mexico, and that's what we're talking about. This is the cultural sort of manual to really get into the spirit. But if you want a, a conventional listing of hotels and restaurants, which one would you guys recommend?
2: Oh, boy. You know, I, I guess I'd Planet, go with the uh, usual, usual suspects. Yeah. Lonely uh,
0: Planet, would that be good? Or Fromers? No, or? no. I'd use anything
2: from our publisher and nothing from anyone else. Moon. The moon, guide. <laughs> the moon Guide to Mexico.
0: You're a good man. <laughs> Seriously, would you have it? would you use the Moon Guide? Is that a yeah, good one? Yeah. yeah. So the uh, the Moon Guide to Mexico? To be quite honest, I don't use those
2: guidebooks, right. But of course, yeah.
0: A lot of a lot of our listeners. A lot sort of people of I mean they're
2: there. popular and they work. And by the way, I want to mention that Matt brought up a good point from the previous caller. I would suggest Guadalajara. Lorena and I lived near Guadalajara for a few years and that is a largely unvisited city. There's mm. a significant population of Canadians and Americans in the region. Mm-hmm. But Guadalajara is a quite a large, interesting city and doesn't get much mm. tourism. So if you want a Mexican immersion, there you nice. go.
0: And a springboard from there to the colonial circle? And there's circle, so or... much in the vicinity. Isn't so the colonial so circle nearby there?
2: It's in the colonial, what What's... I would call the colonial Circle. So you yeah. can fly
0: into there
3: do that city and then
0: pick up a car? and do Yeah, or to fly home. into
2: Mexico City and, and take a fast bus or, right. you know, right to Guadalajara.
3: You know, renting cars is not that easy in Mexico or hmm. cheap.
0: So what would you use the buses? Or? I would
3: use the first-class buses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget the line. One of them has only like one row of seats on one side. Really? I mean, you're talking wow. luxury. And then once you're in a town, hire a cab.
0: Yeah. Because for the if, uh, day. You could use a, take a lot of taxis before you'd come, oh, to come out of a car rental. Yeah. Very good point. Thanks, Matt, for your call. Thank you. Shelby's on the line in Charlottesville, Virginia.
4: Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. Yeah. Um, seeing as Mexico is such a, a big draw, you know, it has the resort draw for tourists, um, oftentimes it seems that the tourists go from airport to resort, you know, with a blind eye towards the poverty that Mexico has and i'm just wondering if you find that Mexicans have sort of a resentment towards these tourists or if they're happy that they're bringing money into the country.
2: No, i don't sense resentment at all. In fact, i remember a quote that really struck me, quite touching, a guy working a Mayan working in Cancun as a matter of fact and uh, and he said, "We survive on our wages." and we live on our tips and and Americans are considered the most generous tippers in Mexico by people i know who work in the service industry there so on the contrary you know there there is a great affection for everything american but it's mixed with kind of a resentment because so many americans look on mexico as a third world country to them that means Poor, uneducated, and that's so wrong.
3: Friends of ours who are educated, most of them speak at least three languages or four languages. Yeah. I mean, we're considered, even Carl and I, you know, we're a bit illiterate. We can you know, get by <laughs> on two, more or less. You know, and, but it's just standard to know at least three languages. The Mayans, they're speaking English, German, French, and wow. their own Mayan language just to have a job in tourism.
0: Does that make sense, Shelby, to you?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's,
4: I, I definitely agree it's, it's an unfortunate thing that we have, that that feeling about Mexico and Mexicans, but it does seem to be there in some certainly American tourists.
0: And I, th- I think if you travel with the spirit of Carl and Lorena's book and actually hang out in this main square and, and uh, eat and drink and party with local people instead of uh, going to these uh, resorts that are cloistered off and have your little stretch of pristine beach swept free of local riffraff and a plastic strap around your wrist so you can get margaritas without spending uh, any of the local coins, that just isolates you from Mexico, and and you come home not learning about Mexico, arguably.
2: I I just read, in fact, uh, this morning, because I read the Mexican newspapers on the Internet every day, that uh, if you look at publicity for Cancun, you usually don't see the word Mexico mentioned they're selling Cancun as a
0: Caribbean destination. Oh, that's very telling, yes. Shelby, thanks for your call.
4: Thank you very much.
0: And Carl and Lorraine, we've been talking about having that intimate experience, not dashing off to the resort and making sure you don't, uh, you know, get your fingers dirty, but how to really immerse yourself in Mexico. And I was enjoying, you had a a list of experiences in in your book and uh, different ways, just humble, simple ways where you could go to any old town and have an experience. Can you share some of these uh, ideas, simple ways where Anybody can really connect.
3: Well, one thing I always like to do is when I get talking to a woman, ask her, like, what's her favorite meal? How do you fix it? Perfect. Just in a casual conversation, what do you do? And then if you get to know them at all, join them for fixing a meal. And then, of course, you get to eat. Your family's relating to their family or as an individual. And And that's realistic. You become friends.
0: That's realistic. Anybody could have that experience. You don't need to be Lorena Havens, who's written a guidebook. You don't have to even speak Spanish. You can go down there and have that experience. Absolutely. If you strike up the conversation. Carl.
2: Yeah. You know, Lorena and I don't like to move around quickly. So typically, if we'll find a nice little cheap hotel, we might stay two, three days or a week. I like to go to the same little coffee shop or the same corner store and sit, usually there's a chair, you sit in the corner and you kind of become a temporary local. You don't even have to say anything, but people will be curious. Hey, What are you doing here? You know, they'll, they'll see if you, first of all, do you speak any Spanish? A lot of people speak a little bit of English. Right. In fact, that's where I learned most of my Spanish was sitting in a local Tienda, a little mom-and-pop store, and I did that for six months and it was and cheaper and better and easier than any language school I've ever tried. Beautiful. Yeah.
0: And you also wrote about just challenging people to spend an afternoon in a beachside restaurant.
2: Just yeah. Let right. the whole
0: day go by. Eat eat your way through the whole menu. Do one it by... Mexican
2: style, I call it Seafood <laughs> Sunday. Yeah, where you go in at eleven o'clock and you camp.
0: And you don't leave <laughs> until the sun goes there. down. <laughs> I want to do that. That is what I'm going to do next time I go to Mexico. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been celebrating Mexico with the authors of The People's Guide to Mexico, Carl Franz, and Lorena Havens. Thank you guys so much for uh, sharing your beautiful philosophy about traveling in Mexico. Thank Thanks, you, Rick. Rick. Great to be here. <laughs> I love that idea. Yeah. Seafood Sunday.
4: Vente, mamacita, hoy te quiero invitar Un caldo de mariscos <laughs> que voy a preparar Todos los ingredientes yo los voy a poner Con tu linda boquita te los vas a comer Ya puse el abulón, el pulpo y el ostión Y después del caldito te arrimo el camarón Ya puse la abulón, el pulpo y el ostión Y después del caldito te arrimo el camarón
0: share your own tales of Mexico or anywhere you've been. There's a webboard for your comments in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Our next stop is the Netherlands, where journalist Jonathan Gruber has a good view of trends in Europe, including the glitzy pop music extravaganza known as the Eurovision Song Contest. It's travel with Rick Steves. The contest that propelled pop artists like ABBA, Brotherhood of Man, Katrina and the Waves, and even Celine Dion into international stardom is gearing up this year from Copenhagen in Denmark. Much like how American Idol has made a splash on U.S. television, in Europe, the Eurovision Song Contest is viewed by millions every May. It gives singers and bands the chance to become household names across Europe, even though most of them remain completely foreign to us on this side of the Atlantic. This year's semifinals are scheduled for May 6th and 8th, with the finals on May 10th. American-born Jonathan Gruber has lived in Holland for more than 20 years. For most of that time, he's reported on European culture for Radio Netherlands. He joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to fill us in on how Eurovision fever is playing out and to share some of the other cultural treats he and his family enjoy from their home base near Amsterdam. Jonathan, thanks for being here. It's great to be here. Jonathan, every year in Europe, there's this Eurovision contest,
1: and we don't have anything quite like that in the United States. Can you tell us what this is? They don't have anything quite like it anywhere. Uh, It's called the Eurovision Song Contest, and it used to be just the countries of Western Europe, but now they've opened it all the way to Azerbaijan and Israel's even in it. It's all these different countries have basically a competition. They deliver a singer, they have two rounds, people get knocked out, and then the finalists all end up in one big blowout, and uh, the winner of the previous year gets to host it that year, and it's just, I mean, I think at one point it probably started off as an actual song contest or a song festival, but now it's just turned into this gigantic mega kitsch festival that you don't want to miss because you just cannot believe some of the things that people are willing to do to win this thing. So is it kitsch musically,
0: like you have that um, Schlager, that that syrupy German folk music, or what's, what's kitsch
1: about it? It is kitsch in every imaginable way. The people look kitsch, the dancing is kitsch, the song is kitsch, the decor of the sets is kitsch. It's all It's all quite mad. I mean, and for this reason, the Eurovision Song Contest is immensely popular amongst Europe's male gay community. Okay? It's that kind of campy kitsch. Campy, Yeah, I mean, oh, super campy, super campy. And I do think a lot of people aren't aware of it. They just think that this is just great, especially since many of the Eastern European countries have joined in. They've brought, shall we say... Um, Fresh another Elan <laughs> to uh, to the contest, another, another aesthetic, which they think is just fantastic, but which Western Europe just thinks to themselves, how could they do that? How could they possibly bring these people over? And what's also really interesting about it, this is one of the most interesting parts about it, is that it's immensely political. It's geopolitical. I'll give you a perfect example, right? When the Norwegian Act comes on, guaranteed Sweden... Finland and Denmark are going to give the most points to that act. And the same thing goes with the former Yugoslav states. Huh. Even though most of these countries were at war with each other, they will give each other the maximum amount of points. It's incredible. So now each country has its pop star. It's it's
0: sort of catch a rising star from this country and that country. How, how is the voting done?
1: Here's how the voting works. All the acts have gone off and then what they do is they will connect to a studio in each of the countries that have participated. And they will ask the person on the other end of the satellite line, and it's usually somebody who's gotten all dressed up for the evening, and they will say always the same things. I just want to thank everybody for what a fantastic evening this has been. It's been the best Eurovision ever. And then everybody claps and they go, yay. And they say, and now here are the points from the jury from Estonia or whatever country they're in. And then they give the points, right? And it's usually from from zero to 12 and then, of course, they have to give everything in French as well. Dix points. We have 12 points, and then everybody screams, hooray.
0: So, Jonathan, how do they actually vote to find out who's the winner of the Eurovision Song Contest?
1: Okay. So, every act has gone onto the stage, and then what will happen is there'll be this big intermission in which the host country will show an incredibly expensive music video, And over this music video on your local TV, you'll see what number you have to call to vote for each of these acts, right? And you usually have to pay for that. And so it's done by the viewers of the people who actually pick who's won. So remember when I mentioned that it was political? Yeah. Well, this is exactly what happens, right? They vote very politically for this. So people in Croatia are definitely going to vote for the people in Serbia or the people in Bosnia or the people in Macedonia, et cetera, et cetera. And then what happens is, once the voting is done and the lines are closed, they will go to a person in a studio in each of those countries, and then that person who is really dressed up for the evening will say in an incredibly awkward moment just how fantastic it was that it's the best <laughs> Eurovision ever, and then they'll say, and this is how the people from Estonia have voted. And then when, you, when they get to the moment with the 12, because that's the maximum amount of points from that country, everybody shouts and screams, and then the camera zooms in on the act that got the 12... wasn't ABBA sort of introduced to Europe at the Eurovision contest that's right they sang Waterloo and they won the Eurovision song contest and that's how everybody's heard of ABBA Katrina and the Waves even played the Eurovision song contest one remember them walking on sunshine yeah go figure well it's
0: very uh, Euro pop but at the same time it has would you say that there are cultural cliches
1: that are celebrated in the Eurovision I would say that there are cultural cliches which are celebrated in the Eurovision song (laughs) contest Rick I would say that that was definitely the case. That if you were out to discover uh, a Europe that defied the clichés, I would say don't watch the Eurovision Song Contest. Okay. Look, if you can catch it, if you can catch it, I highly recommend that you watch it because I guarantee you will have never seen anything like it before. And Jonathan, when does that happen each year? It happens at some point uh, in the late spring each and every year.
0: speaking with Jonathan Grobert. We're talking about uh, kitsch in Europe and Dutch culture. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Sid's on the line in Atlanta, Georgia. Sid, thanks for your call.
4: Thank you, Rick. Um, I am interested, particularly uh, as someone who grew up in the what's called the low country of South Carolina, I think there's an affinity <laughs> for people who can reclaim low land and really make a wonderful uh, country. I'm Thinking about a trip to the Netherlands soon, and it's going to include beer drinking and biking, (laughs) diking, cheese. Give me some thoughts, if you would, Jonathan, on some of the places maybe that uh, I wouldn't get. Um, I want to be really true to the the countryside. Give me some ideas about where, where I should head.
1: Well, okay. Well, I mean, when you get to the country, tourism there is incredibly well-regulated. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to tell you two things that most people miss, but that are really, really worth doing. Okay. The first one is very close to Amsterdam. It's a place called Marken. And Marken is a former island out in a small sea just to the north of Amsterdam. And it's really worth going to simply because it's usually not busy And it looks exactly like a Dutch fishing village used to look through the golden age in the 17th century all the way to the beginning of the 20th century before the country really industrialized. It still looks fantastic. Just so you know, Sid, that's Marken, M-A-R-K-E-N.
0: Okay. And that's just like less than an hour north of Amsterdam. A lot of people go to Volendam, and from Volendam you can catch a, a little boat, uh, just a cute little boat that ferries people over to Marken, and you get this very romantic approach to the island that the island town that, that Jonathan's talking about, and it is idyllic. I was just there wandering on the back streets of Marken. I could have made a whole
1: photo essay just on that town. Yeah, Volendam is more touristic and easier to reach, but Marken's nicer. For sure. So the second thing that I would advise to you, Sid, is that you go to something called the kruller muller Museum. And it's tougher to get to because it's in the center of the country. It's about an hour and 15 minutes out of Amsterdam. But what it does is it's a big open-air park. And in the center of this open-air park, you have an excellent modern art museum, including a giant collection of Van Goghs that they don't have in the Van Gogh Museum. And Ah. It's it's just amazing. And also there's an open air around this museum is an open air museum that's filled with statues and all kinds of giant moving objects. And, you know, it's even good for kids, believe it or not. And to get there, you take a bus, you go outside the park and then you take the free white bicycles that they have there and you bike about a mile or so to the museum. And it's super fun to do. And that's why I really recommend that people go to the Krüller-Müller Museum.
0: You know, that was one of the uh, very innovative uh, sort of things was having those free white bikes scattered all over the park. So when you get there, you hop on a bike, and you just roll around, and as Jonathan said, you got a great chance to see uh, Van Gogh in a, in a beautiful environment, and the Open Air Folk Museum there at Arnhem nearby. The The Dutch just have a wonderful heritage to share, and if you go to the Open Air Folk Museum when you're out there near krohler uh the Open Air Folk Museum should be seen sort of in partnership with that. It's just a couple miles away. You can visit all of the historic buildings. You, you can see paper being made the traditional way. You can see windmills working. And uh, I just thought it was the wonderful sort of culture on a lazy Susan for experiencing the Netherlands. So once again, Kroller Mueller Museum, K-R-O-L-L-E-R, M-U-L-L-E-R, and the Open Air Folk Museum nearby in the town of Arnhem, A-R-N-H-E-M.
4: I am thrilled that I've gotten advice from such experts.
0: Have fun, Sid. Okay. Boy, Jonathan, it's fun to, to hear your take on this because I would imagine a cool thing about raising a family, you've got a 5-year-old and a 10-year-old, is you've got all these great sites within an hour of Amsterdam uh, like Marken or kroler But What's another example of some fun place you'd take the kids?
1: Oh, well, if you're going to be in Amsterdam with kids, then you shouldn't miss the Science Museum, NEMO, which is really an excellent science museum by any standard. It's a world-class museum. And in there, they also have this great cause and effect act, which is the best thing. You know, it's basically one thing knocks over another thing. But they've managed to stretch that out for a solid 10 minutes. It just knocks things over, bicycles are falling over, giant balls. and, And it's totally worth going to, and it looks like a giant green ship. And it's just a
0: short walk from the train station in downtown Amsterdam. You know, uh, Jonathan, I was cruising around the countryside actually heading for Marken, which you just recommended with a Dutch friend, and we stopped in a little town, and we had, I think it's called kibbling. Mm-hmm. Sure. thats I would think if you got kids, I mean, if you like fish and chips, kibbling is the best fish and chips I've ever had.
1: Kibbling is is my son's favorite food on Earth. Kibbling. He's like a skinny 10-year-old kid, but he can knock back, like, huge, vast quantities of that. And what it is is small chunks of various kinds of unidentified whitefish, which have been breaded and deep-fried and then salted and usually served with some kind of creamy garlic sauce. Oh, yeah. It's really good.
0: Any little cute little town or tourist attraction or roadside stop or little port, you can find a stand selling kibbling, and that is your fun, kid-friendly, I think, uh, lunch. Yeah, I agree. We're speaking with Jonathan Grobert. Jonathan and his family have lived in the Netherlands for over 20 years. He's a journalist, former host of The State We're In on Radio Netherlands. Jonathan, I was just driving over the huge uh, dike system there at the Rhine Delta, where the Rhine hits the Atlantic, just awe-inspiring what the Dutch have done to to build up the levees and so on, and I understand that the Dutch are investing a lot now in anticipation of rising sea levels. Get us up to speed on, on uh, the impact of global warming on the Netherlands and what the Dutch people are doing in response to it.
1: Well, I mean, the impact of global warming here hasn't been that strongly felt just yet, so... What they're doing right now is anticipatory. I mean, they they see the water level rising. This is something the Dutch understand. So what they're doing is they're continuing to invest ever more in their diking system. Let's face it, this is a system that has already existed because of the nature of the Netherlands being, you know, half the country being below sea level. If they didn't dike off the system and have an elaborate series of pumps and canals running basically throughout the entire country, it, it would have flooded long ago. Um, What they just decided very recently was that they're going to take one of these polders. Polders is a specific Dutch word. It means an area of dry land that used to be underwater that they have poldered off. That is to say they they cordoned it off and then dried it out and then they let people go live there. But they're going to take something called a Hedwig polder and they're just going to flood it. They're going to let it flood. And the idea is uh, to give the land back to the sea so that the sea has space to breathe, as it were, within the country.
0: It's a huge investment, and it's paid for by Dutch taxes, I would suppose, not European taxes. Is there any discussion in the Netherlands, because Dutch people are famously frugal, is this an important and a necessary investment, or could they be overreacting to
1: the threat of a rising sea level? There's no discussion about this whatsoever. Everybody agrees
0: you have to do it. (laughs) Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Matt's on the phone in Chicago. Matt, thanks for your call.
6: Hi, how are you guys? Jonathan and Rick, enjoying the program.
0: Thanks. Got some thoughts or a question for Jonathan.
6: Yeah, I I do have a question. My wife and I, one of the last major cities in Europe that we have to visit is Amsterdam. We're lucky enough we get to go here shortly. And in doing our research, we like to do a lot of what I think most of your listeners, Rick, like to do is is find the back alleys and shop with the locals, hit some of the coffee shops, um, visit some of the pubs in the evening to meet some of the locals and really get a feel for the city. And in looking into and investigating some of our options, I kept running into a term that I really have yet to get a good definition of, so I don't really understand it, and, I, and you'll excuse my pronunciation, but I think it's gezelligheid or gizelikai. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I guess the, the question I have is, can you define that so I have a little better idea of what that actually is? And two, do you have places around Amsterdam or side trips that really exhibit this gezelligheid well?
1: Okay, well, gezelligheid is this term that Dutch people claim is completely untranslatable. I, I disagree. I mean, it just means like something that's warm and cozy and has a light atmosphere. That's how you translate it, you know. And it's pronounced gezelligheid. Go on, say it.
6: Gezelligheid. (laughs) Gezelligheid.
1: Gezelligheid. Yeah, yeah, and the Dutch people very often say the word gezellig. In fact, I'd say they'd overuse it to the point where it's, for me, kind of lost meaning. But anyway, I don't want to take away the romantic idea you have of it. If you really want to be, like, a little bit adventurous in Amsterdam, and you want to experience gezelligheid and at the same time get something unique... There is a bar on the Prinsen canal, the Prinzenchacht, called the Twee Zwanches, the Two Little Swans, the Twee Zwanches. And what this bar does is it sort of exhibits this special kind of singing that they used to have in the 40s and the 50s, in the post-war era of this working-class era of the city called the Jordan, which had this, they had these kind of torch songs. And if you go to the Tres Vanches, then you will have all these people will pull out microphones and they'll suddenly start singing this, including the bartender. The bartender sings all, all evening as well. And if you know a song, they'll just hand the mic to you and you can sing too. Now, I don't think they expect you to know the songs, but if you want to go there, you know, it's perfectly friendly and it's perfectly welcome. And I would do it. It's, it's super fun. That sounds fun.
6: Is, is there a time that's best to hit that? Is, is it a late night place like a Spain where it's 8, 9, 10 p.m. or is it early in the afternoon?
1: I think it's better to go there on a weekend evening. That's when you're most likely to attract the most amount of people. Best atmosphere. The most gezellig, if you will. You know,
0: I was just in Delft. I I just was there this last summer, and I found Delft. I'd been there before, but I never really appreciated it. It's got canals. It's got flower boxes. It's got, you know, every restaurant seems to have a, a little barge parked out in front where they have cute little tables where people can eat on the canal. And the main square is so cute and cozy with its spires that are tilting a little bit as the Polderland settles, and I just felt the whole town of Delft was, was very gazelic.
1: Yeah, it's like a little postcard. Yeah, Delft's really gorgeous. Matt, thanks
0: for your call, and have fun on your trip to the Netherlands.
6: Thank you. Looking forward to
0: it. How do I say gazelle again? Ghezellig. Ghezellig. i got to get my Dutch <laughs> ready. <laughs> Jonathan Kruber, former host of the State We're In, Radio Netherlands, thanks so much for getting us up to date on ghezellig, Netherlands.
1: So, the most common way to say goodbye in the Netherlands is tot ziens. Tot ziens. Right? Which is like, you know, until we see each other again. See you later. Tot ziens. Yeah. Right? Another common one is dag. Dag. I haven't heard that one. Dag. Which just means day. Doeg. Doeg. And in the south of the Netherlands, they say, how do. Dag. Doeg. How do. Tot ziens. How do. Tot ziens. And in Amsterdam, which has a lot of Yiddish mixed into it, because it had a very large Yiddish-speaking population before the war... People say, the muzzle. (laughs) The muzzle. Right, like Mazelchow, Jonathan Gruber, two teams. The muzzle.
6: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac kaplan wolner There's more online at ricksteves.com, including audio from the show that you can download to your smartphone or MP3 player. Look for the Audio Europe link at ricksteves.com. And while you're there, click on the radio tab to get more details about each week's show, including web links to our guests.
1: We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one
0: small group at a time. Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.